This is VLX number 65, I have not come to bring peace. We are in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. God give you his peace, in nomine Patris, Efidi, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine Patris, Efidi, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So today is kind of a tough one. Modernists usually take this not literally. They usually say, well, Jesus didn't really mean that you should put him before family members. Of course, they say, God is love, so we would never want to have any competition, or of course, Loving your neighbor is loving God. But this isn't what our Lord says. You know, elsewhere in the Gospels, we hear that the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second, which flows from that, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is actually what we're recapitulating today. You see, the ancients and the fathers, sorry to say this, they took it literally today. They actually took this literally. But we are going to see some distinctions between the peace the world gives and the peace that only our Lord can give. So let's look at this line by line. That first line, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let's see what Father Lapide has to say about this. Do not think that I have come to send peace upon the earth. I came not to send peace, but the sword. Here's where Father Lapide delineates between the peace the world gives, the peace that our family and friends can give for just compromising with them, and the peace that only God can give. Father Lapide says, Peace here refers to earthly peace. For Christ, promised by Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 to 7, and 65, verse 25, that he would bring spiritual peace of mind. The peace of the union of the faithful among themselves and with God and his angels, which leads to peace and everlasting felicity in heaven and at Christ's birth. The angels announced this to men, Luke 2.14. So what he's saying right there is the peace of compromise that you get for just kind of agreeing to sin with everybody is a temporary peace and there's really never lasting peace. Not only before we get to hell with that, literally to hell, that type of peace leads us to hell, But it is usually ephemeral here on earth, where the peace of true Christians dwelling among themselves with our Lord, even if they're being persecuted, is this lasting peace. It's a peace of mind, is what Father Lapide just said. The peace of the union of the faithful among themselves and with God and his angels. And what does this lead to? He says this leads to peace and everlasting felicity, which means happiness in heaven. And he reminds us that Christ's birth, at Christ's birth, the angels announce this to men peace on earth, not just in heaven, peace on earth and goodwill to men. And this is what the kingdom of the Catholic Church brings, is peace when it's done the right way. Okay, how about that word a sword? He says, this is a separation, as Luke 12, 51 puts it, 
discord in faith and religion. Christ means that he will separate his faithful Christian people by reason of their faith from unbelievers. But the unbelievers will on their part take occasion to separate themselves from the faithful and will hate them and will deprive them of liberty and goods of life. Now many people think, well, what if I just look like I compromise with the world, but I still love Jesus in my heart? Well, this was a problem in the early church. Father Lapide quotes Tertullian, who wrote in his Scorporacum against the Gnostics, who, quote, taught that it was permitted under torture to deny Christ with the mouth so long as his faith were retained in the heart. But Father Lapide is showing that the church fathers taught against this. The Priscillianists afterwards taught the same. This, these were heretics. Their motto was, swear or perjure yourself, but betray not the secret. In other words, whatever you do with your mouth and your hands is going to be fine in God's eyes as long as you maintain the faith in your heart. This is not right, according to the early church fathers, according to the Catholic Church. We live out our hearts by our actions. We live out our minds by our words. So we do reveal our faith by what we do. There can't be a disconnect. If there is, it's going to be elevator down. This isn't going to work for, for uh, confessing Christ. So this brings us to the question, can we fake our love of Christ to get along with people, or can we fake, say, our rejection of sin just to keep our jobs? The answer is no. Now, even non-traditional Catholics out there say we're more like the early Christians in the early Roman times than, say, Christians in the Middle Ages. Fine, I grant that. But let's remember the early church, the early Christians, were much more rigorous and less forgiving of compromise than the medieval church ever was. Father Lapide shows early families that literally fulfilled today's gospel to the T. St. Victor of Utica writes of a married woman named Victoria. While in view of the multitude, she was suspended over a slow fire. She was asked by her husband, who had already apostatized in the presence of their children, why are you suffering, wife? If you despise me, then have pity at least on these little ones whom you bore. Why do you forget your womb and set as naught those whom you brought forth with groaning? Where is the covenant of conjugal love? Where are the social bonds between us which not long ago, for decency's sake, were recorded on a tablet? Look, I beg you, at your children and your husband and hasten to fulfill the precept which the king has commanded so that you will be spared the imminent torments and be returned to me and to our children. But she, hearing neither the children's weeping nor the flattering of the serpent, setting her heart on things higher than this earth, despised the world. So Father Lapide makes this point, or rather he's quoting a saint, one of the early church saints, saying she was over a slow fire. This wasn't going to be a quick death. Burning is the worst death you can endure, but this was going to be a slow death. And then what's even harsher is her husband and her kids are there and just, just, say Jesus isn't Lord. They're saying, just say that um, you're not going to follow him, that you don't, he's not the one true God, and this slow fire will end. And then you can return to your kids. And what does she do? She dies a slow death because she puts Christ first. You see, the early Christians took today literally putting Christ, even being roasted alive slowly, ahead of their husband, even ahead of their own children. So the end doesn't justify the means and say being pastoral or pleasing your neighbor so as to maybe eventually bring them to Christ. No, you have to please Christ today and hope your neighbor follows them tomorrow. Now we already talked about this word in Greek, axios. Axios means worthy. We just heard that. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, we modern Christians, Catholics and non-Catholics alike, we often like to say things, and I pointed this out before, 
well, nobody's worthy of Jesus' love, and therefore we all are, is essentially the deduction of that. Well, it sounds humble, and there's a little truth to this, um, but today our Lord actually said there are people worthy of him. Listen again, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. At least by deduction, and it's not necessarily 100% since there's some other gospel precepts you have to fulfill, but here's essentially what I think we can take from deduction from that. If you love Christ more than your son or daughter, you are well on your way of being called worthy to follow Christ. Again, we moderns like to say, well, no one's worthy of God's love. And then we sound so humble that it really comes to the point, everyone's worthy of God's love. Okay, well, here's the fact. The fact is, by the cross alone, we're all capable of receiving God's mercy. And in that sense, we're all unworthy, brought to worthiness through baptism and confession. So there's a truth there. But remember, baptism and confession is just the beginning of the Christian life. It's coming into sanctifying grace by the total gift, the total mercy of God. And in that sense, yes, none of us are worthy of that because we're all sinners. However, to then follow Christ closely, this is where there is a matter of worthiness, right? Because to follow Jesus, that's why some of us are worthy. And I'm not necessarily putting myself in that category. Some of you are worthy Those who put Christ ahead of job, ahead of parents, ahead of relevance, ahead of popularity, even popularity to your own spouse or kids, as we just heard in that story from the early church. So, you know, we all have these excuses. I'll give you a real tough example. Maybe you say, I'm going to go to an illicit wedding of my son because if I love my son today, I can win him to Christ tomorrow. Well, today's gospel shows you, nope, that doesn't work that way. Here's the thing, if it's the wrong thing to do today, then you're choosing your son over Christ and you're not worthy to follow Christ. And then guess what? You actually lose both. You lose Christ and your son. Why? Well, because first of all, no son, even one getting married in an illicit union, is going to respect his parents going against their own Bible, especially or even if he no longer believes in it. But what's more shocking is our Lord's words about how you lose him, Christ himself, if you put anyone before him in his holy law, even a family member. Listen again, this is from today's gospel. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay, the next line, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now there's four interpretations of cross here according to Father Lapide, that 16th century Jesuit. All four of these are very childlike and non-rhetorical in their theology. Did I just say childlike? Yes. And remember, only children will enter heaven. So I have no fear of saying that. Father Lapide points out these four things. To bear the cross is to be ready for the sake of Christ to bear reproaches, stripes, imprisonments, and the most painful and ignominious death, such as the death on a cross which Christ vouchsafed to bear for us. So the first there is literal. We hear a lot of figurative interpretations of the gospel all the time, but here we can know through the church fathers, through the eyes of Father Lapide, Jesus meant it literally that some of us, some of you, some of the saints rather, have been crucified, literally crucified with Christ. And only after that do we get to the figurative, that after Christ bearing his cross for us, we also should follow him, bearing our cross with love and reverence, and thus make our way to heaven. Nevertheless, the cross can be understood here as any tribulation permitted by God. And then Pope St. Gregory the Great gives our third. The cross that Christ is speaking of is death to worldly things. So this is speaking of mortification. And then also Pope St. Gregory the Great, the fourth one here, 
The cross is born in two ways, either when the body is affected by abstinence or when the mind is touched with compassion for one's neighbor. Their neighbor's sins are an instrument of torture to the saints. Okay, the next line, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, we hear this all the time, but we have to realize that this is actually one of the most ironic lines of the gospel. Listen again, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That doesn't mean we go commit suicide. What that means is when we have our eyes solely on Christ and everything else falls around us, even to the point of becoming homeless or poor or rejected, that's actually when we secure our eternal life the most. Tertullian said this in Father Lapide's book, God hath willed to destroy death by death, to bring torments to naught by torments, to give life by taking it away, to heal the flesh by wounding it, to save the soul by casting it away. So you hear the irony of that, but really we're in the Easter season. Just think of how ironic it is that it is in dying on the cross that Jesus resurrects. And as we hear in the Mass, it's by dying he has destroyed our death. By rising he has restored our life. The greatest irony would seem like the failure of God, as blasphemous as those words sound together, what looked to man's eyes as the failure of God was actually the initial rumblings of the resurrection, which recapitulates everything in God's justice, not just his mercy, but everything is in his justice. And what we're going to see in a minute is things on this earth are not as they seem in God's eyes because he has the final word. Now, it is true on earth that we Christians, as I've said before, we're never called to be doormats. But if we keep our eyes on Christ, some of us will suffer as doormats. And you know, sometimes I think maybe, I read about the early Christians, and sometimes I think maybe these early Christians were just playthings for the Romans. But here's the thing, those early Christians, they never compromised on their convictions. That had to be shocking for those Roman soldiers who were still pagan to see such gentle people, these early Christians, say, pulling babies out of the gutters, and then walking off to get tortured without putting up a fight when they were caught as, caught as far as being Christians. But then having this courage to rebuke emperors and governors to their faces. This is how we have to aim to be. You see that, that gentleness and that conviction was very confusing. And it's very confusing for people today. They see the gentleness of Christians and then they see these boundaries that we will not cross. And they're like, I thought you were nice to me. Well, we are nice to you, but God comes first. You know, and the early Franciscans, they were like this. They were very joyful and even playful. But then they'd go to convert the Muslims because, sorry, unlike the Franciscans today, the early Franciscans believed those Muslims were going to hell if they, the Franciscans, didn't preach the gospel to them. So we need to put God first, not strategize around how to sound pastoral to get people to like us before we speak the true, the hard truths. Now, it is true sometimes we do work on that relationship uh, for a while before we speak the hard truths, but we never compromise the truth of the gospel, even in the slightest way, to make a little bit of a friendship for a later, say, strategic move with the gospel. We can never deny Christ to later confess him. So you say, that's nice for Franciscans, but what does this mean for family people today? Well, I would say this, men run to Christ regardless of your wife, and then let her catch up if she wants. Women run to Christ regardless of your husband, and then let him catch up if he wants. Now, with that last line, I fully believe in men being the spiritual leaders of their families, but never to the detriment of holiness by leading her to sin. And this is just like how I believe bishops should be the spiritual leader of their priests, but never to the detriment of holiness by, say, leading his priest to sin. And remember, sin is not just deeds of commission, but sins of omission. 
Not just the things of commission, which is things we do, but omission, the things we fail to do. In other words, each one of us, no matter our state in life, has to seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be added unto us, like we heard many BLXs ago in Matthew chapter 6. In campus ministry, when we had all these students who were kind of looking around to get married, we had this line, maybe a little bit superficial, maybe a little bit corny, but it's pretty good theology. We'd say, run to Jesus and then take a breather and look around at who's keeping up with you. Run to Jesus and then pause, take a breather, look around and see who's kept up with you. Okay, maybe it was a little overused back then. Maybe it sounds a little corny, but it's good theology. Put God first, not your loved ones, and then let them catch up with you. And if they don't catch up with you, well then, we have the words so harsh for the modernist ears, but directly from our Lord in the gospel today. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. But, but don't, don't you want peace with us, kiddo? Don't, don't you want to have peace with us? Because didn't Jesus come to bring peace? Yes, he came to bring peace, but the peace that is founded in his commandments, not in compromise with the world, the flesh, and the devil. So I guess what I'm saying on today's gospel is the early church fathers, the ancients, the early Roman Christians, they all took this literally to put Christ before their families. You know, yesterday's gospel in the traditional Latin Mass, that was the third Sunday after Easter, had these words from our Lord as recorded in St. John's Gospel. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. You see, everything's going to change after death. There's way too many Christians today, Catholic and non-Catholic alike, and they think, first of all, they think everyone goes to heaven, and then they have the wrong idea of heaven. They think heaven is basically just this doped up jacuzzi with steam everywhere and our intellects are on pause. No, heaven and hell are more real than earth. You see, already here on earth, we're just teetering between heaven and hell, which can be more real, and they're based on every decision on earth. All the good are going to have it harder here because we're swimming upstream, or you're swimming upstream. I don't, I don't know where we all fall on it, but the good are swimming upstream. And maybe you remember that line I gave in Holy Week, that sermon from uh, Holy Week where I quoted St. Bernadette, and she said, Why must we suffer? Because here below, pure love cannot exist without suffering. Now, I know that that sounds like a superficial line, but that's one of my favorite lines from the saints. Listen again. Why must we suffer? Because here below, pure love cannot exist without suffering. So what is in there? Basically, it means as long as there is free will around us, as God leaves this planet, we Christians will suffer at the hands and at the false words of unbelievers. And God is going to leave free will until the final judgment. So maybe there are very few people, very few holy people on the planet now. Certainly not me. But they, those very, very holy people are going to have the hardest lives because they live pure love. Why? Because pure love will collide with evil forces all around them and make them live in suffering. It doesn't mean misery, but it does mean suffering. Now, that's more than just pious self-pity for those people. That quote from St. Bernadette actually shows heaven and hell in it. You see, hell's the great equalizer. Think about it. Think about who's living together on this planet. Do you really think trafficked kids are going to end up in the same place as traffickers? You see, if heaven and hell, if God's judgment that leads to heaven and hell is just, 
then we got to get rid of this idea of heaven just being this doped up jacuzzi with steam everywhere and nobody's intellect working. Nope. It's more real than here on earth. It's even more physical than here because it says a new and old Testament that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. You see, everything changes at death. Who's on top of the food chain and who's on the bottom, it gets flipped. St. John's Gospel again, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He's talking about here on earth. The Christians will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. We always hear people say, well, show everyone what a good Christian you are by rejoicing. Yeah, that's, that's true. But remember, a lot of those early Christians were praising God while being tortured after being handed over by family and friends. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When? At the beatific vision. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a man has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. So if the imaginative way of prayer, I'm going to have you meditate on heaven. What would it be like to go from martyrdom to seeing God face to face? And so I'm going to have you skip purgatory. That's why I'm going to have you be a martyr so you can meditate on how this life can be really stinky and what it's going to be like those first 10 seconds to see the face of the Blessed Trinity, to see God face to face. You know, a lot of the early Roman stories of the Christians are quite romantic. I don't mean that it was easy. I, I certainly couldn't undergo what they've undergone. But let's consider maybe there are some new martyrdoms that are a little sloppier. There was a priest in Buffalo, kind of overweight, kind of had greasy hair. And the day before he was going to go report a bunch of scandals, I think you know what I mean, a bunch of scandals of other priests to the diocese, he was found dead in his home. So here you have a guy who doesn't look like one of the early Christians, isn't fasting, probably super hard. He was about to go out to big, he was an Italian, got to big Italian dinner with his sister right before that, so he clearly was not suicidal. Um, here you have an example of someone who kind of, the world would say, looked like a slob, who's probably rejected by his diocese. And right before he's about to go report all these scandals, he's found dead in Buffalo. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I think he's a martyr, to tell you the truth. So switch this up a little bit for you. The point is that you're going to go from martyrdom to see God in heaven, but maybe life didn't work out the way you wanted. Maybe it's not the glorious martyrdom. Maybe it's a lonely martyrdom. And this is going to be your launching point to heaven. So just hang tight for a second. So just imagine that most lonely death. And then at the moment of cardiac arrest, remember we're going to skip purgatory because you're a martyr. Imagine being met by Our Lady right as she brings you to the beatific vision, as she introduces you to our Lord Jesus Christ. Would that be worth a hard life? <laughs> would it all be worth it? Those first three seconds of seeing our Lord and our Lady face to face. Imagine those first five seconds then of seeing the Blessed Trinity face to face in heaven. That's your imaginative way of prayer. Thinking of, uh, say, how hard all the pains of earth is, rejection by families, friends. Is it going to be worth it? It's going to be worth it those first five seconds of seeing God face to face. That's why I want you to meditate on this in the imaginative way of prayer. Um, remember our Lord's words that I just gave you. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. This is a prediction of heaven. Imagine again a lonely death 
by yourself, maybe an embarrassing martyrdom like that priest I described, dying alone, but then being escorted by Our Lady to heaven to meet Jesus face to face in this supersonic symphony of angels around you. Yes, imagine those first five seconds of seeing the blessed Trinity face to face in heaven. Everything on earth here done for him will be worth it. I don't get locutions. I don't hear saints whisper in my ears. I don't see things. But in my heart, every time I complain to a saint in my heart, deep in my understanding, again, this isn't words, deep in, deep in the understanding in my heart, I feel this encouragement when I just feel like, is it really worth going on? What I hear in my heart is keep fighting. It's all going to be worth it when you make it here. Please say an hour, Father, for me that I can make it there to heaven. I benedict your dame, your potentis. Patris e fili, spiritus sancti, descendet super vos et maniet semper. Amen.